Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the things that really frustrates me is that because there are so many good comics out there that aren't picked up by TV and radio. And as I say, maybe the reason they're not picked up by TV and radio is because they haven't got that, the sort of management who, who are connected with TV and radio or would push them. I feel that the, the, whether the BBC or the ITV or Sky or whoever it is, that there aren't enough people from those um areas going out there to the clubs finding acts themselves they seem more reliant on on going to the players already so the management already who control those acts and saying who have you got rather than this is somebody i've found you know what i mean it's like if you had somebody or people who were incredibly passionate about comedy out there seeing what's you know happening now what's out there in the clubs and then maybe doing the first circuit shows I think you might have a different kind of comedy genre, uh, TV-wise. Hello, and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast, episode 55. My name's Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, TV, and today, touring. Mick Perrin is the founder of Mick Perrin Worldwide, which is a touring and management agency based out of Brighton, whose first client was Eddie Izzard on his National Stadium tour. Since then, they've gone on to work with massive clients, including Dylan Moran and Bill Bailey. So we get into how he got into the business, what keeps him in the business, common touring mistakes indie comedians make, and more. I'm not going to make this a long intro, this is a very quick one, although there is some quick news in terms of our social media output. So, two things. One, if you want to support the show, please join the Facebook group. It really helps out and it allows me to tell you when I've got new guests coming through. And two, uh, I've got a YouTube channel. I've had a YouTube channel for this project for a bit of time however i've not really used it yet so i've started to convert these audio interviews into video interviews they're not actually the video of me and the guest talking it just means you can listen to it or st- and stream it off of youtube if you want to if for whatever reason you can't access it at work in another way it also makes it another way that you can share the pod and i was gonna just try it as an experiment because it's really hard to sort of stand out and get people to discover the podcast on itunes because obviously the front page is not something that everyone uses but also it's something that is so full of content that means that i'm finding it hard to kind of stand 
out in that way. And so I thought it might just be an interesting experiment to try and boost the following for this podcast. So if you want to find it, go to YouTube, type in RC Industry Podcast. You'll find the YouTube channel there. And I think so far I'll have 10 up by the time this episode goes up. So feel free to check that out. Feel free to share that with friends. Feel free to subscribe. And that's it, really. I'd just like to take a minute and thank you all for all your support recently. It's been really lovely. I've got some new reviews. Please do get, do one if you haven't done one yet. They've all been really fantastic. Just give it an honest review. Whatever you think it's worth. It could be one, two, three, four, five stars. Ideally, those last two at minimum. But, yeah, so that'd be great. Thank you very much for listening. Without any more delays, this is Mick Perrin. Shield. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, I think I was going to start. So, uh, okay. essentially, what I normally do is um, for the first question, I ask the question, and then I ask the person to answer to include the question in their answer. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the so the question was going to be what got you into to- like promoting comedy tours. So if you could say something like uh, I got into comedy promoting tours because and, or something like that. Okay. Can I think about the question each time or what? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, can because edit that's, a very, there's a very, that's a very long-winded answer. Or Okay. I mean, do, do you, do you, how many questions do you have? Or are you just going to do a certain amount and see where it goes? Because some of them could be long-winded and some of them could be relatively short. That's totally fine. Like, I can edit it down or I can change it around. And I, I have, I have uh, let me see. I mean, is, is, is that sort of question is really how did you get into the business? Yeah, it's just, it's just a bit of background information for anyone listening who have never heard of Mick Perrin worldwide so that they can kind of get a, a bit okay. of an understanding as to uh, what... I can start a different area if no, you want. No, 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 it's fine. It's, it, it's, um, it's probably a good place to start because it's... it's, it's but, but it's just that the story is quite long and 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 it'll it'll take in quite a few things is that all right that's fine yeah because i've got nowhere else to go with it really it's such a <laughs> how do you get in well i didn't just get in i i, I kind of grew into it from small stages and from the punk bands and all the rest of it and the yeah. whole thing sort of ties in so the it's not a short question the, the short answer. no that's fine the, the interesting thing for me that's coming out of this is uh people who've been in the industry 15 20 25 years or more talk about uh, supporting bands. So, for example, I had on uh, Henry Normal yesterday. Oh, yeah. And he was talking about how he started with uh, being, uh, you know, like a, an opening act for bands. And we were talking about Porky the Poet, who Phil Jupiter's, and how he did that. And, and I think narrative-wise, it's very interesting for, for me, but also for people who are gigging now, to understand that, you know, 30 years ago, that's what you did. And how that evolved into a club circuit and then a touring circuit in the way that music was 30 years ago. And it's I'm sort of interested in a weird way about the parallels of how music touring and supporting yourself as an artist now is 30 years ahead of, I think, where comedy is because Mm -hmm. of the because of the fact that music has been so sort of structured in a different way that comedy has that I think in 30 years' time we'll all be, you know, trying to get a base of, you know, people that like what we're doing in a much more proactive way rather than sort of hoping that an agent will jump on us and put us on TV yeah. or doing that kind of thing. So so okay. it doesn't matter if it's not a lo- if, if it's a long story because it will, it will it will affect the narrative of the rest and of the And then exactly that's yeah. what I was thinking you can pull any of that yeah. or interrupt or whatever and and talk about it because if you and also if you feel it's going on too much because there is a point but it it does meander but anyway. That's fine. Okay. Go for it. Ask the question. Oh, sorry. How did you get into uh, promoting comedy tours? How did I get into promoting comedy tours? That's. Um, I think it's it's probably easier to start where I started, um, and back in the in the seventies, in the mid seventies, I was a 
I was a musician. I was basically on the dole, but I was a musician. And um, various bands were formed in Brighton, various punk bands, and I was playing in several of them. Um, and during that time, there were other uh, friends of mine playing in bands. Um, and after a while, um, they had a great idea to earn extra money by uh, doing street busking uh, in Brighton. And I didn't want to be part of the street busking thing, so I suggested I would go and help them uh, bottle. That's where you collect the money from the punters or ask for money from the punters. Um, And they uh, were a bunch of guys, um, and they were collectively called Pookie Snackenberger. It's a very good name. Um, And people who have been going to Edinburgh since the um, probably early 80s will remember Pookie Snackenberger, as well as another um, uh, well-known Brighton... um, theatre group called Cliffhanger Theatre. So these guys, Pookie Snackenberger, formed this busking outfit, which was really popular, and they eventually took it to Edinburgh, and they did a show, and they they basically won the accolades of Edinburgh, and they coupled that with uh, also doing shows in a place called The Playground in Edinburgh, which was an open area uh, court where they used to busk with Cliffhanger Theatre. Um, and during this time, the likes of Eddie Izzard would be uh, starting out also doing his busking show. And there's, there's a sort of relevancy here, really. So I I stopped playing music and got into production. And then, um, I, you know, I learned how to do lighting and sound and production management. And eventually I went on the road with these guys and we did various dates around um, around the UK and abroad. And then after another couple of years um, out of this was formed a show called Stomp and Stomp was also Brighton based with two of the original guys who were part of Pookie Snackenberger and so I stayed on throughout in between that time there was also a show called Yes No People and so if you hear of Stomp you'll also hear of Yes No People because Yes No People uh, were a band but also the creators of Stomp and then obviously Stomp uh, I was I was then their tour manager their production manager uh, again, we went around the world, and Stomp, as you know, was a, a huge success. And I think there are five Stomps now touring the world. There's still one in London. Yeah. There's still one in London. There's still one in New York. I think it's uh, seven or eight years now. Are you still involved in, in that at all? Or? No, I'm not, because, um, again, um, trying to get me into how I started in comedy, um, during this time, uh, and touring, of course, I started meeting a lot of uh, people who were beginning their careers in, in comedy. And so I, I decided after about th- three or four years with Stomp, it was time to do something different. And I heard that this, um, this chap called Eddie Izzard uh, was looking for a tour manager. And so I went for an interview for the job. And um, when he realized I was the guy who used to work with Puka Snackenberger, he thought, well, if I'm good enough for, for them, I'm good enough for him and Stomp, etc. He knew about um, uh, Luke and Steve from Stomp. So um, he gave me the job, and I ended up doing a tour which was called One Word Improv, uh, which is that poster that you see over there. Um, and that was the first ever tour I did. And then from that tour, he uh, asked me if I wanted to be his permanent tour manager. So, so basically, I ended up touring the world with him. In between times, I'd also started tour managing Dylan Moran, Tommy Tiernan, Ardlo Hanlon. So I had a, a tour management thing going. I was basically the van driver. You know, the, the, the guy did the lights, the guy did the sound, the guy set it all up. Um, and so 
after th- three or four years working with Eddie on all the tours as his tour manager, we were on a plane uh, going to uh, Melbourne, I think it was, and uh, he, he literally handed me across his computer and, and it was a, an email on it and um, he said, read the email. And I read it and it said something like, Dear Eddie, um, I just want you to be the first to know it's been great being your promoter, but I've been offered this fantastic new job and I'm going to take it, so therefore I can no longer be your promoter. And I said, wow, what are you going to do, Ed? And he said, well, you've always been talking about wanting to be a promoter. He said, you're my promoter now, if you want to be. And I said, yeah, that's fantastic. And then he paused and then he said, you know, I want my next tour to be an arena tour. And of course, an arena tour for a comic had never been done before. So in one breath, I've been offered the job to be a promoter, but also given this mm. massive task of trying to um, trying to do a tour uh, uh, for a comic in, in an arena. Um, and I had to go away and, and, and think about that. And um, eventually uh, I formed a company and, and, uh, and by hook and by crook, I raised the money to do that first arena tour which was incredibly successful so I kind of set myself up in business because of that and then the acts that I would was looking after um, Tommy and Dylan and Ardle um, they, they came over to me as a, as a promoter so I ended up you know within a, a six months having you know five or six really top acts so that's how I got set up and and at this point, were they with management? Like, was all, all with management, yeah, absolutely. But they were able to just come to you? Like, did their management not get a say in...? Um, yeah, no, they did. I mean, the first thing I did when I got uh, home off the, off, the, off the plane was to ring Jiggy, who is Eddie's manager, and say to her, listen, I know this sounds crazy, but Eddie's just offered me the job as his promoter. And, she's, and, and I said, and he wants to do this arena tour. And she just went, great. So you know, love her. yeah, love wonderful. Yeah. yeah, she's a wonderful woman. Yeah, and um, have, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. No, she's she's fantastic. And I just said, yeah. I said, this is great. But and she said, I think she said something to me. How are you going to raise the money? And I said, I really don't know yet, Jiggy. But I, I I'm going to do it. Um, and I think within about two weeks, I I I you know formed a company. And working from my bedroom, I was calling around venues. In fact. I literally rang Wembley Arena and the first thing they said to me is, um, he's a comic, isn't he? You know, uh, so it, it was it was one of those uh, times really that, that it, it was pretty crazy. I even got double booked somewhere because they didn't take me seriously. Um, but um, yeah, Ch- Chiggy was amazing. She just accepted it. And, and Chiggy at the time, well, no, still does at the time, uh, looked after and looked after um, Dylan and um and tommy tommy now so I, it was it was quite easy um to sort of take on those those guys so yeah the whole thing was very very quick and easy um but um, obviously if the tour hadn't have worked for eddie that would have been the end of my career <laughs> yeah thankfully he's very good <laughs> yeah he was very good and because i've been working with him for so long i i you know i knew the numbers that he was selling to so i thought well if we play five nights in Sheffield and we're playing to, you know, 1,500 a night, surely we can do one night in an arena. So it, it was, it was it, you know, it was knowledge-based as well as really wanting to do it. And Eddie, you know, always pushes the boundaries. Mm. Um, and so you kind of got to be there for him and with him. So it was a challenge. And we'd already done some huge places. We'd, um, we'd played Docklands Arena 
um, which I think we played a half arena to test out. We did glorious there, and um, you know it, it it worked out. It, it was a it was a big success, and the question was, would people come to this huge, mm. you know? Well, that, that's the interesting thing for me. I mean, um, my, my favourite comedian is Louis C.K., mm. and, uh, or one of them, and he recently just put up a thing saying, or his tour, tour stuff's gone on sale, and he's doing the um, Wembley Arena. Oh, yeah. And I'm not going, because I'm worried it's not going to be as good as the last time I saw him. Because Where did of the you size. see him last time? I saw him at the Hammersmith Apollo. And I was standing on the left-hand side, so I stood for about like, two hours watching him. But, and I, but I don't think the experience is going to be there with, with the size of the venue. I mean, did you have resistance with... Because, I mean, if audiences aren't used to that kind of venue for that sort of performance... Mm. I mean, Eddie, you know, he's very animated. And he'll, he, I've seen, you know, sort of recordings of... Um, I can't remember the recording venue, but he had, like, a stage that went round part of the audience and stuff. Yeah. So, so, you know, he, he made the, the venue his own, not just the stage. Yeah, we thought very hard about the production, and we spent an awful lot of money. But what we were worried about more than anything else about the production was sound. You know, when you're playing in Wembley Arena, there's 10,500 seats. Mm. So you have to use delay systems, you know, so the people at the back are hearing the sound, you know, a milliseconds later than the people in the front. So you have to be aware of that. You have to be aware of that from, from, uh, from, from an audience perspective, but more so from a performance perspective because the laugh is also delayed. So you may say something and then as you're moving on to the next piece the they're laughing at the thing you've just said and you hear that coming back so it can it can really throw you so we practiced a lot with that and also we we use very um uh, i can't remember if we had them at the time but we used the highest definition screens that we could get and made sure that even even the person sitting in the you know the the upper seats in the corner could see and hear everything that was going on in fact there were great seats up there you could literally see it but you'd be watching a screen um, and we also made the decision that we wouldn't do it like TV. We wanted to keep it as live as possible. So we followed the act. We followed Eddie. If he went you know, left, we panned left. If he went right, we panned right. So we followed his actions. We didn't try and cut it at all. Um, and, um, and it worked, you know. I mean, I mean we've, we were pretty nervous about it. Mm. But once we did the first night and got the first night out the way, we realised technically it all worked. I mean, so many things could go wrong, you know. Um, so, so we realised we had something. So as a performer, you have to say stuff slower or pause for longer? I think you do have to slow down a tad, yeah. And, and you have to wait for those applause to come through because otherwise you'll be drowning out what's coming next. It's, it's listen, you're talking about milliseconds here, but mm. you can't. And obviously the bigger the room gets. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, we used a great sound designer, a guy called George Glossop, who I think was the first guy to put a radio mic or a capsule mic on um, Kate Bush and uh, of course we were the first again to use these uh, headset capsule mics these tiny little mics and Eddie didn't like it in his face so it was almost hidden down his cheek somewhere so the, the you know the, the distance of sound playing in the ten and a half thousand seats so we had a number of issues um, and the last tour we've we've just done and each tour of course since we've we've played arenas but the last tour we did we've used um uh, twitter feeds etc as part of the opening so the audience can can tweet and it's up there on the screens instantly and then we open it up and you can see from all over the world tweets coming in hey blah blah from new york you know or south africa so it's um it's a, it's a fun thing to do 
Yeah, definitely, and, it, and it's community building as well around the act. Because yeah. if you've if they've done like five dates in Leicester, and now they're doing two dates in London, and all of a sudden, you know, they can see tweets from the fans up there. It, exactly, it, it's, you're in for a great night, guys. It, or I saw it two months ago. Where I'm going to see it in three months, and you know, especially when it's a world tour like Eddie's is. Yeah. Well, Eddie's, I think it's 27 countries, mm. and so you know, you can see all the tweets coming in from all over the world, and it's you know, and it's great. Different people saying different things, or someone tagging someone else or it's um yeah it's uh it kind of makes sense to 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 have that um and um you know the thing about does it work in a, in a big space i think i think if you produce something for a big space it works but i, I i've you know I've, I've i've seen stuff which really shouldn't have been in such a huge space i mean there's no need for it other than you know well they can i guess um, I mean, personally, I'd rather see something in a, you know, in a 150-seater. But, um, you know, the likes of Eddie or, or Dylan or Michael McIntyre or whatever, I mean, you know, it's not going to happen, is it? Yeah, they, they, they'd sell out 200 dates as 150 yeah. and still have room for, you know, doing lates and early shows for that sort of thing. Yes, I mean, there's just not enough, you know, years in their life, basically. Yeah, I mean, I remember a quote. I, re- I really like your quote from when we did the live pod, where you said something like, "Is the venue as big as their ego, or something like that?" Mm. Where where you were discussing whether someone should even do a venue of that size. Yeah, <laughs> well, it is also obviously about ego. Um, I mean, I suppose once you know you can do it, it's it's not really about ego, but not knowing if you can do it. Mm. You know, it's a fantastic place to be. Really, it's a really scary place to be. Um, but, you know, I mean, you kind of know, as I say, if you develop a show which is right for an arena, then there's only one place it can go in an, it is an arena. And then it's, well, can it sell? I mean, at the moment, I, I've got, um, I'm producing Gary Tank Commander, Greg McHugh, um, in the Hydro in Glasgow, which is 10,500 seats. Now, most people say, well, Gary Tank Commander, we put, but, you know, we're doing three nights in there. And, um, you know, and it looks like it's going to sell out. So, it's a fantastic position to be in because we can now do the show, Gary Tank Commander, as it should be done with the full cast and, you know, whatever special effects we want, it's going to look absolutely amazing. So, you know, that's a, that was us not knowing if we could sell the tickets, but really, really wanting to put on a big production because if we'd have half done it, we'd have ended up in a, you know, a thousand seat venue or whatever and not been able to do what we really wanted to do and possibly not been able to afford to bring in the cast and all the rest of it but this way was the way to do it so you know we, we take a huge chance a huge leap of faith um, and it seems to be working out it sounds like so I I would have thought that audiences especially comedy savvy audiences would have been resistant to going to a venue of the, the size of the O2 Whereas it sounds like it was more maybe the booker at the O2 that had the most resistance because you said, you know, you ring them up and they go, he's a comic. Because if they've never done it before. No, they've never done it before, exactly. Yeah, and, and if you're an audience member, it might be exciting because you're like, oh, we'll go to the first ever comedy arena tour. Yeah. That's actually a selling point. Whereas yeah. for the booker, they're thinking, yeah, but are you going to get enough people in? Well, the only time it was ever done prior to that was Newman and Badil. Mm. And I, I, I don't know if it was all of the Wembley Arena that they played in or a half arena, but they... You know, it, it it wasn't a tour as such. It was it was it was a one-off event. So, and and that was several years before. And so, no one had tried to do it since. And um, you know, 
it's it's. I mean, I, I was touring. I was tour managing Lee Evans at the time. I was doing that show. I was so I was, I was producing the show for Eddie and tour managing Lee. And I remember telling him one night that this is what we were doing, and he said, "Wow, that's amazing! Wow, imagine that!" And then, like two years later, Lee's like doing six nights or whatever. So you know, it, it was it it was relatively easy, really. And and I suppose the change came because the technology grew sufficiently to allow us to be able to do a, a show like that and know it would work. Prior to that, I think it was more difficult with you know with with sound and. And certainly screens, they used to have these huge screens called jumbotrons and they weighed a ton and they come in like, you know, four trucks or whatever. So things miniaturised um, to some extent. When you So when you said technology, I thought you meant as in uh, people being able to buy tickets easier like on their phone. Or oh no, not at all. That not have an impact? or I, No. Uh, I think I'd only just got a mobile phone when we did that tour. Okay. So no, no, it just... You know, as I say, what you're really scared about is that the audience don't have a good time. Okay, and and I mean, like I said, I've I've just sort of sorted out a tour for myself. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, I mean, it's very, it's nowhere near that level, obviously. But it's it's one of those things where you um, surprise me, Simon. I know. So I've, I'm ambitious, <laughs> but it's one of those things where um, I've found out. I mean, I've been learning about uh, splits and and renting the theatre versus you know door splits and and all that oh, yeah. kind of stuff. And uh, I've sort of slowly learning that there's sort of different levels in terms of audience capacity to circuits, if that makes sense. I mean, I don't know if you think of it like that. So, so going around like a fringe festival like this, mm-hmm. you know, you, you'd pick a, you just pick a venue based on uh, whether you want to be free or paid first, but then you'd go with room size. And then outside of that, I'm looking at sort of uh, theatre sizes, and then you'd go to arena sizes. I mean, do you think of it like that, or do you think of the show production? I mean, because you, how much involvement are you? you put it this way: if you, if, if Eddie came to you tomorrow and said, "I've got this to- arena's show," mm-hmm. how would he? I mean, he would know now, but originally, how would he have known that would be? good in that because you can't practice that there's no open mic nights for arenas to learn if the show is look I I think that you have to decide whether or not you can sell it in the first place because I mean you can't just take on Wembley Arena I mean it's going to cost you tens of thousands of pounds just for the hire Mm. let alone the several trucks of of gear coming in so you have to know that you can sell it otherwise it doesn't make sense I mean unless you do more than 50% 50% in an arena you're going to lose money so um, if you can't fill it don't do it mm. um, so that's the simple criteria but I mean when I first started um, working with comics and working with theatre companies um, you know there'd be the club circuit and then there'd be the the, the art centre circuit which you know many theatre companies would just do continuously and so you would hope that in terms of a standard comic that they they they'd you know eventually maybe four or five years on the club circuit they'd eventually get some tv maybe some radio they'd be able to elevate to um uh, an art center maybe 300 max and then from that you get onto the small scale theaters um and then you get onto the larger scale theaters and now eventually you get onto arenas now because of tv a lot of people have been able to miss out on that whole middle section. They've gone to clubs and they've gone to TV. And in some cases, they've gone straight to, or seems virtually straight to arenas with maybe a few major theatres in between. So it's, it's, it used to take years, it used to take several years, and now it can be done very quickly through TV, although I think that that's probably not the case right now, but it certainly was 
two or three years ago, you know, when you do a few sessions on live at the Apollo and suddenly you'd be elevated to an arena playing comic, um, you know, which is, um, it's fantastic if you can do it, but most comics can't. So it is that hard slog of clubs, smaller dates and building up your audience as well as, you know, your live audience as well as your media audience, your TV, your radio audience. If you can pull those two things together, then you can be playing big venues within four or five years, but, you know, you need to be out there doing it all the time. In terms of um, the, the, I don't want to call it a shortcut, but the, the TV shortcut, as it were, mm. when you just get a, you, you get an appearance on the Apollo or something like that, and all of a sudden you have a much bigger reach into a much bigger fan base. I mean, do you think that still is the case? Because the amount of comedy that's on TV now, you think it would get saturated and, and not be as effective? I don't think it is the case anymore. I mean, it still, it still helps, but... Um, you know, I mean, as you say, you use the word, it is, you know, saturated is the word. I mean, it, it's a shame, really, because you see so many good comics who, 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 who don't have that profile, whether it's because the management they have or whatever, they just don't get that profile. So they get missed. And, um, you know, there's a great kind of reluctance amongst the public to go and see stuff which they've never seen on TV or heard on radio. And that is a great shame because some of the best stuff is stuff that you've never seen on TV or on radio um, because, of course, it's unedited. Um, and once it's edited, it becomes quite bland. So for me, um, I look, TV, radio, sell tickets. I'm, I'm never going to deny that. But, you know, anybody who's ever listened to anything I've ever said or written will know that I'm not a great fan of uh, of the t- of. TV particularly because I think it just, just does it soaks up the best of their writing and, and, and then misses some of the best comics that we have so um, yeah it sells tickets but other than that I really don't care for it very much no that's fair enough I mean when I spoke to um, Ian Coyle about this he said that he, he's the commissioner for Dave he was saying that uh, he's not really a commissioner he's more of an ad man because he can't commission half the stuff he wants to because it won't get advertising on it and obviously it needs to and when you think of it like that you think all we've got left is sort of the BBC that don't have to appeal to that kind of thing but they've got a lot of other stakeholders they've got to appeal to and then like you said it misses out a chunk of people that maybe just wouldn't work on TV but the reason it wouldn't work on TV is because it's a live thing and it's amazing live. I think one of the things that really frustrates me is that because there are so many good comics out there that aren't picked up by TV and radio. And as I say, maybe the reason they're not picked up by TV and radio is because they haven't got that, the sort of management who, who are connected with TV and radio or would push them. I feel that the, the whether the BBC or the ITV or Sky or whoever it is, there, there aren't enough people from those um, areas going out there to the clubs, finding acts themselves. They seem more reliant on on going to the players already, so the management already who control those acts and saying, who have you got, rather than this is somebody I've found. You know what I mean? It's like if you had somebody or people who were incredibly passionate about comedy out there seeing what's you know happening now, what's out there in the clubs and then maybe doing the first circuit shows, I think you might have a different kind of comedy genre uh, TV-wise. But do you... Do you think the reason why they're not doing that... Well, first of all, uh, they're probably worried about losing their jobs and not taking a risk because it might backfire and go wrong. Yeah. So there's a, there's a 
logical marketing based and and self interest based reason why they might not do that, but also it might just be that those people like you know, like we said are, are live acts rather than pre recorded and edited acts. So even if they find them and go, this person's great, then they're not they're still not going to put them on because mm. it just won't translate. Maybe maybe that's the case, but you know sometimes they suddenly discover somebody who's been you know, on the circuit for donkey's years, and then they're on every channel seemingly every hour of the day. You know, it's it's kind of saturation time. So why aren't they out there finding those same people earlier on or more people? Because if they can find one and then everybody goes, oh, this is the guy, or this is the gal, this is the person I'm going to... You know, why aren't they out there already finding those people? If If they're looking for different... My God, there's lots of different out there. If they're looking for the same... I think any of us can find that. Mm. I mean, it, it's it, it, listen. It's it's difficult, especially as this is being recorded for me to say really what I think. But it, it is a great frustration because you know I know there are some great people out there who never have a chance and never get a chance, and and I would I would like to maybe maybe there should be a program, a special program to give those people the chance. You know. Mm. Maybe maybe that's what the BBC should do if they're being told that they're not diverse enough, you know, rather than getting the, you know, the the big celebs, the ones who are going to have two million people watch. Maybe they should find comics that actually there's only going to be a couple of hundred thousand people watch or a hundred thousand people or a hundred people watch, but it's different and new. And maybe they'll create their own um, live comedy. When I spoke to Anne Edivin, uh, who's the head of the BBC Writers' Room, she said that the push for diversity at the moment is, uh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing massively, but it was it's towards um, like sort of ethnicities and, and different uh, niches in, in comedy in itself, because at the moment there's not enough content coming from those, and they need to be seen to uh, cover a wider range of, of um examples of you know different writers and different performers which I totally get and I totally support I don't like the mandating of it I don't necessarily feel that's a logical way of dealing with it because it highlights it more and it makes it seem like you're doing it because you have to because you're being forced to rather than yeah. that you want to you know what I mean um but I I, I I know what you mean I just don't I think uh, Stuart Lee's comedy vehicle was an attempt at what you've just suggested, where he was going to say that he's just going to pick the people he likes, regardless of management. Well, that's just been killed off, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, yeah, but he was. He, uh, no, was it? What was, was the? I, I just read the other day that they they weren't doing another series. He's not. Doing, yeah, he's not doing comedy vehicle. It was oh, the alternative comedy experience. I mean. Okay. Okay. okay yeah. Okay. He he was doing that where he was bringing on people that he just liked, regardless yeah. of management, which I like the idea of. But again, a lot of them were very established and had their own fan base, and it wasn't. I mean, I'm not saying grab people from you know obscurity because again, like you said at the start, if you just grab someone from obscurity, put them on TV of out of nowhere, then where do they go from there? Because they can't just immediately do a you know arena tour because they're not ready for it. No. It's hard to say. It's, I mean, there's many ways of looking at it. I, I agree that diversity and eth- ethnicity are important factors, um, and there are some bloody good people out there. Sorry, I just caught on that. I've got, I've got to think about how I approach that. It's a really good question because anything that you say may come across as being 
almost anti that, which I'm not. But does that mean that if you're if you're white, middle class, but very, very good, you're still going to be missed because you're you're still not ticking the boxes that are being asked of you. As someone who's on, uh, I would say I'm white middle class, and as um, as someone on the circuit, both touring and club at the moment, I would say that you can be because there are, are friends of mine who are great, who are fit into that middle ground, who are not doing as well as I think they should be. But that's my biased opinion on a friend. So obviously, I'm even more biased than I would be about just a talented person. But I think I think anyone can be missed, but I think you just need to like be aware of the business element mm-hmm. and the more aware and the more this is partly what this is about the more you ask questions the more you can try and fit the boxes that they're asking for because if you if you if, so for example if you want to make a TV show for like BBC you just need to know that they you need to write 28 pages about a minute a page you know, for the sitcom, because they're half hours of 28 minutes, and they need a certain, you know, and then know what channel you're writing for, for example. If you just want to write a sitcom that doesn't fit a tone of voice for that channel, put it on the internet. You can still do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So I think at the moment we're at a very interesting stage mm-hmm. where you can find out what people want, and if you tick the boxes, then that's great. But I think if you make the boxes impossible for people to tick, that's when it starts to become a non-level playing field that you that it should be when it comes to a talent-based arts? Well, observational comedy, for instance, has been around for an awful long time now. Mm. And I think more and more people are looking for new perspective on observational comedy. Um, you know, one of the things I've uh, done in the last year is formed a management company, mm. but not for UK based acts but for overseas acts and particularly acts um, performing in a second language interesting okay and yeah it is interesting and one of the main reasons it's interesting is because of course they come with a whole new set of um, not rules but comedy rules Mm. if you like and sometimes they're completely unacceptable Um, you know sometimes I've been through scripts with you know whether it be a Russian or a German saying you can't say that here you can't do that here. Um, and yet, as far as they're concerned, um, we accuse their countries of being, um, <laughs> you know, censored. Mm. And they're saying, but you say we're censored in Russia or whatever, but yeah. we can't say this. You're censoring every other line I'm saying, but for different reasons. Um, Have you got an example of that? Because I'd, I'd like to know, like, uh, where... I could give you plenty of examples, yeah. but but not here now. But, oh, sorry. Okay, yeah. You know, I yes, I mean, I... We get presented with stuff and we say, I'm sorry, but you can't say that. Okay. It's quite simple. And now that could be because it comes across. And, and it's not saying that they are racist or sexist. It's just that what they say, you know, is maybe something that we would have said, you know, back in the early uh, 80s or mid 70s. OK, OK, I get what you mean. But we can't say that now. Right. Because we don't think like that now. Mm. But, but they do think like that now. So... For them, it's, well, what's wrong with this? You know, I've, I've got no problem with gay people or with black people or whatever. Why can't I say this? <laughs> just can't say it, okay? Yeah, okay? If you say that, 
you'll get slammed. You'll just, you know, all all the reviews will be negative. So please don't say that. Mm. Maybe say this instead, or come. So we are trying to educate mm. people who have only just discovered, or only just discovered in the last couple of years, stand-up comedy. When we've had, you know, a quarter of a century or more doing stand-up comedy. So it's. But what's interesting about what they do is their perspective. Mm. You know, from where they come from. And, um, you know, we have signed South African comics, French, uh, Italian, mm. uh, Dutch, uh, Swiss. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very interesting group of people and, uh, and all of them completely different. So for me now, it's, it's, it's really wonderful hearing what they have to say about them. Yeah. Well, that's why I said about character, because if you're doing it in character, I think that's, that's fine. Okay. Really, because you know, you know, we've all seen left-wing people play right-wing characters, mm. and it's fine because you know they're literally just taking the piss out of them. Yeah. Um, not that the right-wing people seem to realise that, but. Um, but yeah, no. Even with you know, even with what I would say left-wing, and I probably, you know, ninety-nine point nine percent of all the people I know and work with are left-wing biased. Even they come out with what you would think of as being right-wing mm. stuff. So that's what you have to watch because you don't want people to think that. No. As I say, unless it's a, a character and it's very much down that line of character. So, um, yeah. Yeah, like Al Murray, for example. Like Al Murray, for example. Very obviously a character. I mean, uh, I interviewed Copstick for But very this. obviously left-wing too. Yeah, yeah. But, I, but I'm saying that the stuff he says, you can... Uh, it, it just it just from even the minute he comes out on stage, you can tell it's so over the top that it's. But he has a whole posse of right wingers yeah. following him. Yeah, you just don't get the character. Yeah, um, yeah. Or maybe they do get the character, but they want to support it. Maybe it's pretty weird. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, you can't eliminate that from your no, audience. No, you can't. Do something like no, that. you can't. No, your audience chooses you. Don't you don't choose them. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Uh, no, I mean, uh, when I went to Copstick for this, uh, interestingly, she came out in defence of Dapper Love. You know Dapper Love? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did she come out? Yeah, she said um, she said it's a character, so it, it doesn't make sense why everyone was jumping on him, because as a character, you you should get, not indemnity to say whatever you want, but you get more scope to say things, is, again, massively paraphrasing what she said. But, uh, I mean, I, I and, and again, it comes down to personal taste, whether you like what he says and what he does. But again, it's one of those um, interesting dynamics of, of... Can the word character just not be a, an excuse to do that kind of stuff, though? It can be. And I, I remember when... Because I had him on Facebook when before this all happened. And, uh, you know, he booked me for his night a while ago before I'd seen him gig. And uh, I, I had him on Twitter. And I remember a while ago he got, he got tweeted mm. and asked if he was a character. And someone said... He replied, not really. Um, and this was like four years, five years ago. And, uh, you know, he, he, I remember that because I remember after seeing it, I've seen him thinking, I wonder if that is where he does. Right. But then it, obviously everything came out and he said it is uh, a character. Now, wh- whether that is a defence or whether that's him, you know, ch- changing what he was doing in his own mind. And now it is a character. Well, as long as he knows what a character is, it's a character. Mm. I fear he may not know what a character is. Well, no. Uh, I mean... <laughs> I, what it could become a character, like it's 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 got all the elements. If you took if you if you wrote down 
sort of how a character would would or the sort of criteria of what you would need to have a comic character it could become that but personally at the moment i don't feel like it is that was why i found it interesting that she sort of um felt like if he says it is it is so maybe don't jump on him but i suppose that's not what you want well your... she'd have to believe that he is a character too yeah i mean look you can you can watch any act and you i mean you know pretty quickly if it's a character or not yeah I don't know. I can't comment. That's fine. No, I mean, I'm, I was only bringing that up because I thought uh, it's obviously not what you want to happen to any of your acts who might get not mistaken. For no, if they, if 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 what they were developing was a character, mm. if it was character comedy, mm. and this, I, then they then they came out and says, "Look, I, I used to back in the day, Puka's like I used to work with a guy, and he used to do, and he was a, a very left wing guy, and he used to do a character which was a South African policeman." Mm. Right, and this is in apartheid era, and he used to dress up as a South African policeman, and his opening line was something like, uh, "Why give the blicks the vote? They don't eat it." Right, right, yeah. and that was how he did his whole act. Now, half the audience, or more than half the audience, didn't know that he was doing character. Right, okay, and he was getting stuff thrown at him, getting spat at. It, it was incredible, and yet this guy was somebody who was, you know, as left as you could imagine, but doing a great. And he almost did it too well. He was too good at it. The <laughs> accent was too good. The act was too full on, and it really hit. I mean, lines like that, but just mm. all all the time. And um, you know, he literally had to had to run for his life sometimes. Of course, he didn't. He didn't do the character for very long. He had to give it up. Mm. But, you know, that, that, that's a point in question. So if I had somebody who, who came over here, I mean, you know, what if my Russian guy uh, was incredibly, uh, you know, left-wing, but he had this incredibly right-wing character? Uh, would I want to put him on stage? Yeah, if it's funny. And he was really, really good at the character. But he'd have to be really tough and, and, and he'd have to be strong and be able to tough it out. And he'd have to prove to... The reviewers and, and and the intellectual elite, if you like, that it was a character and what he was saying was valid, mm. as well as being funny. Yeah, and I suppose in some ways you'll also make sure he doesn't go to certain chains and clubs because regardless of how good he is, certain audiences are never going to want to go with something like that. No, no, they're probably not. Um, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because, you know, we, we're... I mean, again, I came up in an age where you could really say anything you wanted to say, as long as it wasn't racist or sexist. I mean, that was the that was the the big changer which we all breathed a sigh of relief in, you know. And suddenly you had this, you know, these wonderful stand-ups coming and talking the politics really you wanted to to hear. Um, I mean, you know, it'll sound crass now, but you know, when Ben, ben people like Ben Elton came along, it was just a breath of fresh air listening to him and talking about Thatcherism and slamming this, that and the other. I mean, it was wonderful stuff. And Alexi Sale, fantastic stand-up comics. Um, And that got rid of the old. And the old were, you know, racist, sexist, mother-in-law jokes. It was was awful. And I fear in a way that some of the characters coming back in are the old-style comics through the back door. As in... They're doing the racist, sexist, uh, mother-in-law jokes. As character. 
As, a, as in as satirizing. a pretense of character, yeah. Oh, as a pretense, so not really a character. I thought you meant as in the satirizing the the people from thirty years ago that were doing it without any form of irony. Both. Okay, interesting. I I hadn't looked at it like that, but then I suppose I didn't live through that and now seen the cycle. If that makes sense. Yes. Yes. I mean, I I I can see the recycle and or the yeah, I can see the recycling and I don't like it. It, it it bothers me that it's 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 going backwards. It should be elevating, and it's actually it's actually going down. You mean as in it's the, just too easy? The, I mean, what's the circuit in general, or as in? No, I mean that kind of comedy. Oh, okay. Is what is being touted almost? Are you talking about like TV or, or, or circuit or? I think. I think because TV and radio require very quick writing and, 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 and rapid turnover, then the material can be almost derogatory. And I don't want to say lazy because that's not fair, but uh, not as good as it could be if they'd spent more time on it. Not as clever as it could be, so therefore it yeah. comes over maybe not being, but sounding incredibly crass. Yeah, and maybe... Because, I mean, I spent a lot of time... And then they have to try and defend it, which they can't. <laughs> yeah. That that always annoys me because I'm sort of like, I, I get you've got bills to pay and I get you it's an opportunity, but I I mean I spend a lot of time thinking about the victim in every joke I've got because I want to either be I want to either be punching upwards because it's me that's the lowest end or I want to be the victim in the joke if that makes sense because I I don't especially while I'm basically unknown I don't want <laughs> you know you can't be an unknown comedian and all of a sudden be like, right, I'm going to be high status. Cause it, I mean, unless you, unless again, it's your character, like uh, Marcel Lucant or something. I'm sure when he was on the open circuit yeah. more, he's high status. He's and, and he, the character works because and I mean, I met him uh, after I'd seen him for the first time. He came off and got changed. It was uh, like night and day. And, and I he's was, a lovely guy. Oh yeah. He's absolutely lovely. But, but I was not expecting that because he played it so well that I thought, Oh, he's definitely French. And it was like this sort of weird, not as in, like, I knew it wasn't, I thought he was a French guy playing that yeah, part. Yeah, a lot I didn't, of people do. I know, I didn't think it was uh, actually who he was, but it's one of those things. Uh. Well, he's just, a, he's, he's a brilliant character comic. I mean, mm. perfect, you know. Um, I wonder if the French know he's not. I don't think he's ever gigged in France, has he? Oh, he should. I think he should. I think that'd be, I, I would love a video of that. I would love to see <laughs> how they would appreciate it. No, he's very good. Nice guy. So you, your management agency? Yeah. Is it a diversification of your touring thing? Or is it like you trying to find a new niche for management? Because it sounds like, no. I mean, as far as I'm aware, no one else is doing specifically foreign, uh, sorry, second language speaking comedians as a management proposition. No, they're not. Um, I mean, people are managing overseas acts. Mm. Um, but oh, yeah. uh, but uh, no, that that's... Um, is it a niche? Um, I suppose it's because I, I've I've met so many. I mean, look, the, the reason that the whole thing started up is twofold. First of all, because, you know, I toured the world for 25 years, wherever, uh, you know, been to all the comedy festivals, met some fantastic comics who have supported acts I've been on tour with or I've met at festivals, all wanting to come into edinburgh or into the uk and not being able to find a way to do that not understanding how it works etc etc so i almost got sick of explaining how edinburgh works and who they need to speak to and then the the second point is again meeting 
certain people and then as a promoter inviting them over and wanting to make sure that if I'm going to put all that time and effort into bringing them over then um, really we should have some sort of relationship after that rather than just relying on loyalty which is essentially what I do um, because I don't I don't do uh, contracts as such for promotion so if I so for instance you know it was it was me who invited Trevor Noah into Edinburgh and, I, and, and I'd met Trevor well then when we met Nelson Mandela so it was at the same time we did that that I ran into Trevor and um, he was talking and people said to me you know this guy's a really good comic and um, I'd been introduced to him by Eddie through email because when Eddie was looking for a promoter in South Africa he said oh I met this guy once at the comedy store what's his name Trevor and he gave me his number so my conversation started with him so as I say I met him said to him again you should come in two or three years went by the next thing I get a call from an American agent saying that Trevor wants to come to Edinburgh and would I take him and I and I did so you know I if, if I was going to do all of that and spend all of that time and also all of that money to, to bring someone over and put them in um, I'd want a little bit more out of it I'd want some sort of longevity I did the same with Bo Burnham um, so you know I thought well the, the easiest way to do that then is to and, and I also at the same time I had German guy wants to come in Russian guy wants to come in French guy and I thought well if I'm going to do this why don't I just form something which is a little bit more secure for them and for me mm. um, and so I decided to form an agency and um, and I brought in Natalie to to help me work on that and she's been fantastic and she's um, signed I think we've signed 13 acts now 13 or 14 acts and Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And, um, and we promote them and manage them everywhere outside of their own country. Oh, wow. So, so most of, do they have management in their own country then? They have management okay. in their own country and they do their own dates, etc. But anywhere outside of there, we, we look after. So as I say, Nick downstairs, he's, um, you know, we're working in 20, 
20 odd countries at the moment so if, if we know that somebody wants to come over and so we've got Loiso Gola over here from South Africa at the moment and um, he is um, he's just been on at uh, Soho Theatre and uh, we also have over here God, trying to keep tabs on everybody um, we also have Orlando Baxter who's going to be in Edinburgh to his first year and I met Orlando at Montreux Festival so signed him so he's American but again outside of America but the point is look if, if, if we are if we want to have you know um, what we do we're in we're in the promotion business for the long game and not the short game and, and every act I ever work with I say look you know this might be Edinburgh but hopefully there'll be Edinburgh's in like seven years or maybe you won't need Edinburgh in seven years but I'm, I'm not you know we don't make money from Edinburgh we lose money from Edinburgh we are promoters in the old fashioned sense of the word we will take you into Edinburgh and let's see what happens um, and obviously if if we if, if we work with acts from the UK who have management then really you're relying on the management and the act f- to give you that loyalty back in five years time when they do make it and then there's the big tour and okay great happy to start making some some money and your time and effort will be rewarded but there's no guarantee mm. on that and also the act of course you could take them into Edinburgh for three years and then they lose they leave the management that the, they're in go somewhere else who do their own promotion so again it's it's gone so I thought well okay you know we've we've managed so long with with what we do and we're doing incredibly well and we've got fantastic acts and they're incredibly loyal but what if we're bringing acts from overseas and we have to go through that again, not knowing how it works over there with Germany, South Africa, France. So we decided the best way was to set up a management agency. And that way we, you know, we have that continuation. We have that involvement from day one. We bring you into Edinburgh. Uh, let's see what happens. But what's, you know, what if you run away with a newcomer prize or the main prize? Suddenly you're going to be elevated um, you know, runs at the Soho Theatre, maybe the TV, radio, maybe tours only a year or two away. So we wanted to be part of that, and also all the other sides of being a management as well. Because when people see, you know, you can you can get a commercial out of it. You could you could be a writer as well. You could write film or books. So we wanted to be, you know, all of that. So all all that um, is uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for. Everything. What's the word I'm looking for, Simon? Encompassing. Yes, we we want it to be all encompassing. Okay. And um, and so each and every one of the acts that we've signed so far, that's been the agreement. And um, and yeah, we're starting to make inroads, which mm. is really exciting. And it's exciting seeing them coming through as well. But more than that, it, it gives them a fantastic opportunity to go to Edinburgh without any financial worries. You know, we just, we just bring them in and say you know you do your show we'll sort everything else and let's see what we get out of it because obviously these guys who've been doing comedy may for maybe for six or seven years um have been dreaming about playing somewhere like edinburgh and still not knowing how it works so it's exciting for all of us that's really interesting so as a as their management you i don't say it like this but for once for a better phrase cop the bill for them to come over stay in edinburgh do the show then and pay for the flyers and all that kind of stuff i presume uh they you know go and do the show and then at the end of it you have a 
contractual agreement that you, they'll tour based around where you're going to send them because of your own connections or uh, if if they do well uh, hopefully they will do well but if they do well then they get a run at the Soho which I mean I, I, I presume the Soho will keep you know one slot free for whoever wins, wins a new cover award or stuff like that only makes perfect sense from there yeah. um, so if stuff like that comes up you'll deal with that and then get a, a commission off of that but you I mean does it work as in then so do they get do you get a higher cut of things for the next like three months to kind of pay back Edinburgh or, and then like it goes back down to like a normal commission fee or um no it, it it's it's a bit more complicated than that um I mean look forget the management side for a second but as promoters we take people into Edinburgh and lose money you know we don't charge a fee for Edinburgh we only charge for the people who were there i.e. for the work for the flyers etc for the um, for the for the street team manager for the people that look after the act that's all we charge for um, so you know we have quite a hefty Edinburgh bill at the end of each year and as I say because we're independent promoters we are there bringing acts in and hopefully, um, you know, there's an unwritten loyalty clause saying, look, if we're going to do all of this for nothing and we're going to look after your acts as well as we can, then hopefully we will continue that relationship for the rest of their career. Mm. So that's how we work. For the management side, obviously, um, we are doing exactly the same thing, except we, we don't have to worry about the loyalty clause. The loyalty clause is integral. Because they've already signed a contract. Because they signed a contract with us. As management, you have to have a contract as management. The the most interesting thing for me uh, in interviewing uh, people like yourself or or PRs or or anyone involved in the uh, quote-unquote industry side of it is no one seems to make a profit on Edinburgh. Like, literally, I, I mean, like well, you said... If you, owned a flat, if you owned a flat in Edinburgh, you'd make a profit. Yeah, they, <laughs> they, they make a bundle. Um, but it seems like, I mean, unless you own a venue or a flat, um, everyone seems to make a, make a giant loss. I mean, it, is, there, is, there a re, I mean is, is there a reason why Edinburgh has become the festival out of all of them that is the place to get spotted? I mean... Yeah. It's the biggest comedy festival in the world. Full stop. I mean, it's it's the best, the biggest. But surely that self perpetuates because so, it, it wasn't always that, so it had to have grown to that. It's always been expensive. Okay. I don't think anyone's ever made any money in Edinburgh. You can make money in Edinburgh, but I would suggest you can't make money in Edinburgh if you're going to do it properly in a venue of less than 125, 130, and you could probably break even or maybe make a little bit of money. I mean, look, you've got you know you've got your PR. You've got your flyer, you've got your accommodation, um, you've got to pay the fringe. The, everybody wants to take your money, basically, even even for the ticket printing, the commission on the sales. Then there's the PRS. It, it, it goes on. There's very little left. So when I bring acts into Edinburgh for the first time, they're playing 55 seats. Well, the break-even on 55 seats, I think on paper, is about 175%. And that's not including the accommodation and travel. So, you know, you can work it out yourself. I'd say the average to do it properly in Edinburgh is, you know, eight ten thousand pounds per act on average. Mm. Um, so, how are you going to make that money when you're paying five, six, seven pound tickets in a fifty-five seat venue over twenty, 
three or twenty six nights. It's impossible. You've got to have a bigger game plan. Yeah, yeah. So, so the idea is is that look, we can do it. You know, we can't do it every year for the same act in a fifty five seater. That would be different. I'm sorry, that would be ridiculous. But we can bring them in for the first time because that that's their greatest opportunity. So what you're hoping is is that they've got you know really the best show that they could have at that stage and bring them in for their first hour because that's what you want you really want your best hour there's no point mm. if you haven't got your best hour wait until you've got your best hour I mean for instance Orlando came into Edinburgh last year uh, on our advice and, and, and just did like 35 minutes tryouts on the free fringe and uh, we all came and watched and chatted and he's back over here again doing some tryouts he's doing 10 minutes or half an hour or doing, doing his whole, whole hour some places and uh, you know he's he's got a great show he's getting his show together and we could sit there and advise on what works what doesn't where he should look at um, but this is his, this is the best opportunity he's ever going to get and he and he knows it um, and you know fingers crossed for him because he's a fantastic act so um, so that makes sense from a management point of view more than a promoter point of view but I would and have done the same as a promoter mm. okay and do you scout for shows at the moment, or are you just dealing with your own acts and the the roster of quite established names that you've always dealt with? Scout for overseas acts, yes. Okay, how does that process work for you? Um, we will hear about somebody, and we'll we'll go to a club and see. As in, um, like overseas in in there, or when they're over here, or um, well. It depends if they're doing the show in English or not. Right. Obviously, if they're doing the show in English, we want them to do the show in English. And uh, my Swedish isn't very good, so um, or my Russian or French or anything else. So yeah, we will go to a club here and um, and see. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, somebody. Sometimes the, the comedy competitions are a good place to see, particularly um, overseas people. Um, I mean. Uh, Luca, who won um, So You Think You're Funny. Yeah, I know him, yeah. You know him? Well, we've yeah. signed Luca. Oh, have you? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. We, we've been, some, you, know, you know, like somehow randomly you, you don't gig with someone for ages and out of nowhere you're on the same bill for like nine Oh, yeah. Days. I've just been gigging with him for like the last two or three weeks just randomly. Nice guy, isn't yeah. he? Oh, he's lovely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's very talented. Yeah, he was trying some new stuff out at um, Piccadilly Comedy Club where I was uh, uh, last Saturday. Yeah, it's good. I think we might have Did you do that there. booking? Oh, I yeah, think, yeah. I think, I think so. <laughs> I literally saw you going. Track. I might have put, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, because um, he was on with uh, Loya Sogola here um, in, in oh. Brighton a couple of weeks ago, which I went along to. So I saw his full hour right. as well as Loya Sos. Mm. So, so that's how it works. I mean, it could be a club or, a, or, or, or we might be invited to go and see someone. I just might hear about someone. You know, and there's people out there that, you know, we're talking to at the moment. And, um, you know, hopefully we will we will sign them too. And I don't know how many we will eventually end up with. As I say, we have around 13 or 14. Um, but because they're overseas as well, it's, it's, it's a lot harder. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm praying that we stay within Europe because it's a nightmare already. Can you can imagine how difficult it's going to be to bring in people um, mm. if we, if we uh, leave yeah. the European Union? Yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, we've got we've got mega visa issues and stuff with our our Russian and, and South African. Always very difficult, and they will remain so. But my God, if it was the same with French and Italian and German, it would just be a nightmare. So yeah, it's something I don't even think about. I don't gig abroad, so it's not right. Like something. But also, uh, I remember when Edinburgh was trying to get independence, I sort of posted on Facebook saying, 
will that make a difference to Edinburgh? Because I, I, I didn't follow it properly until I thought to myself, how will that affect me? I don't know Which if it will, actually, because festivals are always different, aren't they? They have more of a sort of open-door policy where mm. there's a sort of visa waiver like they have in, in, in Canada. Um, mm. But, you know, I've I'm obviously always been very supportive of, of the European Union anyway and uh, a big supporter of the Labour Party. But at the moment, uh, we've got Eddie doing um, a series of 333 gigs. Have you heard about those? Uh, it's, uh, he's just did, I remember he did five or ten marathons or something, and then I got told he was going straight on tour afterwards. Yeah, well, they're, 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 so it's, I think we've booked 16, 16 dates around the country, which is in support of the, uh, of the in campaign. Oh, okay. But the first show is in German, the second show is in French, and the third show is in English, but they're back to back, so 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, and 9 o'clock. Oh, cool. Um, which, uh, you know, hopefully will encourage a few people to. To vote to stay in. That's really cool. Yeah. It's, again, it's something different and something. Again, it's something different. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing that he can do it or even think to do it. I've never. Okay. Yeah. I've never heard anyone else doing that. So. No, I don't think there's anyone else mad enough to <laughs> no, do it. Frankly, I was going to say. I was going to say. It takes a. It takes a balls. <laughs> yeah, I haven't. I've never heard of anyone else running twenty-seven marathons in twenty-seven days either. But there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned social media before about how like you've now got not jumbotrons but those big screens that have people tweeting in sort of messages for different people and uh, I mean I want to separate this question slightly because I haven't done that on here but because we were talking about Edinburgh so uh, what something I like asking reviewers is if they think their review is more powerful or less powerful than word of mouth because or if they think it's the thing that starts word of mouth and then people go to the show and then it takes on or if it's the other way around you know what I mean because if if they see enough people tweeting or talking about a show they might go and then be like oh and then their review sort of pushes that or is it their review has pushed the social media so which one of those do you think is more valuable at the moment in terms of uh, Edinburgh and in terms of touring if you split it between social media and reviews <sighs> You could you could say some of it depends on the age of the audience, the yeah. type of act it is, you know, because older people tend not to be too bothered by social media, um, whereas younger people are more driven by social media. I mean, I've got three kids, and they know of comics that I feel I've only just met and discovered and knew, and they already know them, mm. you know, and that always surprises me. And, of course, that's through social media um, so it, I think if you're a young up and coming comic then social media is the driving force because that will that will bring others in as well from the established areas whereas I suppose if you've got a Sunday Times reviewer in you're probably already established or on the, or on the cusp of of fame if you like yeah. um, because there's been so much chat I don't. I don't think that. Um, I don't think it's it's one or the other. Of course, of course, you've got all the YouTubers as well, which are doing well. I mean, you know, we have a an act out who's selling out big places and literally, you know, you know, they have their own YouTube channel. So who's that? I'm interested. Um, do you not want to say? Sprinkler glitter. Oh my god, that's a that, uh, girl. Um, does the yeah? I know who she is. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. and you know we we were approached and um, yeah, took it on, and and it's, it's phenomenally successful. Mm. Phenomenally successful. So you know, 
sometimes you think you know the business and then you realise you don't know anything. Yeah, I think social media has been a bit of a game changer for a lot of people. Um, but I just, but I just wondered if you if you don't really have a following or you, or you've not developed that, but people are talking about you if that because you know, they can do that anyway. Whether that's affecting tours or if that's helping. Or, or if you still put, because I mean, you you mentioned that, like, especially in Edinburgh, you, you get a PR in, or when you're doing a tour, you get a PR to help out with promotion around the place. So I wonder what stock you, you, you whether you whether you still do PRs out of, um, I don't want to call it like backup for so mm-hmm. against social media, but that's the way in my head I see it because it's a historically good way of getting press and and coverage. However, I'm wondering whether social media or word of mouth. From people who know who have seen the act and maybe made a connection with them through maybe YouTube or Twitter. Well, or... social media can substitute expense to okay. a large extent because it's very expensive to advertise, paper right. advertise, incredibly expensive. And so the less you can do, or the less you need to do of that, the better. Okay. Really. So if a few tweets will suffice, great. Hmm. But I'm not sure. It's 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 be it, it's it's a bit like live at the Apollo. It's becoming less and less effective. The right. more and more you get, yeah, and and I mean, I work in social media for a day job, so so I, I personally believe that if you if you can properly build a connection with a group of people that like what you do, they'll just well, they don't just buy everything, but they'll buy into you and therefore hopefully support you absolutely in a way that just because you know you've read an advert in a newspaper, you wouldn't do no, because why would you? But again, social media therefore has been substituted, say for the early stages of touring where you'd build an audience up from the grassroots, you know, like you'd have 12, 15 people in the first time you went round, and the next time you'd have 35, 40, and then maybe it'd be a couple of hundred the third occasion, and then really that's what you're trying to do with social media, isn't it? You're trying to build up your audience. You bring them in. They've discovered you. They tell everybody else. They've discovered you. They tell everyone else. It's just a, it's just a build-up, whereas I think that, you know, the... The modern comic, we're talking about comedy here, needs all of that. They need the PR because the PR really is the central pin, the cog that brings all this stuff in, encourages the actor to talk to their audience. I mean, sometimes trying to get the act act to converse with their audience is a nightmare. And yet we know as promoters that, that, that no one can sell a ticket better than the act talking directly to their audience. That sells, you know, a thousand tickets compared to the ten that a promoter could sell by an advert. So um, I, I think it's, it's, it's all of that. You, you, you have to be aware of, 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 of all the different facets of their, uh, of their life, their social life, you know, what they do, what their interests are. Um, you, you know, I mean, it, it seems that you can now build up a career with probably just a, a very small but dedicated number of tweeters um, if that's the right phrase um, you can probably book a pretty large venue in London based on that, knowing that you will sell it out um, and you may not necessarily have to have an astounding show, you just have to be there to show that you really exist um, sorry, that doesn't make sense. You can get rid of all of that. No, no, no I, I, I understand. Well, I think I understand what you mean. But if you're going to say it in a different way, let me. See. I, I don't know how to say it because I know what I'm trying to think that 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 you, you can 
you can almost build up your own fame from from nothing mm. you know you can you can put something out on YouTube you don't know who's taking it if anybody I guess you get the statistics after a while but basically you put it out there and then people start getting back to you and then you think oh I've been doing this a while now oh my god I've suddenly got 100,000 followers mm. maybe they'd actually like to see me mm. and then you approach someone like me and you say oh yeah I've got this and you go wow that's that looks good what 250,000 people follow you wow it's fantastic yeah let's try something you book a 400 seat venue and it sells out in a nanosecond and you go wow this is incredible and that's how it is at the moment and that's what we're experiencing that, 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 that first of all you've never heard, heard of someone um, and you put a ticket you, you put the tickets on sale and within an hour you know they're practically all gone what, how, how did that happen and also, they've no idea what this person is going to do, mm. and they probably haven't even written a show at this point. So, you know, what's the attraction? Well, they've made a connection with those people. Well, why haven't they made the same connection on radio or TV? Because that's not that. I, okay, um, I can answer that, but it's okay. going to probably sound quite dark and deep. Um, I, uh, I, I, put, I, I get put in the category of a millennial quite a lot. I don't necessarily. I think. If you were to write down the, the, the definition of that, I don't necessarily think I fit into it, but I, but I think age-wise, I, I landed in it, if that makes sense. How old are you? I'm 29. So I think I've landed in it by my age, but I don't... A lot of the stuff that it picks up, I don't necessarily feel I fit into. However, I feel I make connections with people through social media in a way that I can't do on radio right. or TV. Because radio and TV is a one-way medium where you're giving me it's a passive experience mm -hmm. people try to make it an interactive experience by tweeting while watching tv it doesn't work because it's i mean it kind of does but not for everything and it just and it just doesn't feel it feels for me i hate to i mean I've, I've represented brands and tv shows for you know social media and they're always saying we need to get ourselves trending during the program and I'm like, but then they're not looking at the program that you've spent right, 200,000 right, right. pounds putting together. They're looking at their phone. Why do you want that? And it drives me mad. But they go, yeah, but then people are talking about it and it's great. And I'm like, can we not get them to tweet about it afterwards? You know, you've spent a lot of money on this show. Um, but it's what they want. And yeah. unfortunately, I need to get paid somehow. So, it, you know, you sort of go along with what they want as much as you push back as hard as you can. Um, if you, if I suppose generationally you, you're probably not in social media in the same way I am no um, and as a result it's kind of hard to explain but I can so uh, Sprinkled Glitter for example uh, I'm not particularly in her audience shall we say although I am aware of her mm -hmm. I have a lot of friends who, who are quite big on Vine and YouTube and stuff and uh, I've actually got a podcast I'm working on where I'm going to be uh, an, a, a real life troll for them and sort of get them in and sort of badger them as if I'm the online person but because no one knows because I'm unknown yes. It's kind of a silly concept, but um, that's how I know. I don't know her, but I know of her. From the other that. thing as well, I have to interject mm. here. The thing is, is that she's bloody talented. Oh yeah. I mean, she's really talented. I mean, having never done a live thing before, mm. you know, she's she's got it. This is the thing. You you, as much as people criticise it and go, oh yeah, but these are just people, you know, attention seeking whatevers. You can't build an audience without being talented. No. It's impossible. I mean, yes, stuff gets passed over because there's so much online, but eventually it doesn't. Like, and I know that sounds like that whole, you know, just keep gigging and you'll make it kind of philosophy. 
online I genuinely think that's the case yeah. because first of all it's not like a gig where you have to actively look at it go down to it you know make an effort to buy a ticket be in the mood to go to all that kind of stuff online I can pick and choose when I watch something and I can and I can do it like on the train or I can do it in my bed or yeah, I yeah. can and 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 the thing that really gets me I was talking to um again it's Ian Coyle about this because I, I had a sitcom idea and I, and I said that to him and he said you're pitching it at me aren't you and I went no no I want to make it for the internet and he was like oh okay you know BBC Free then I went no no I want to make it for the internet <laughs> and and the reason I want to make it for the internet is because of this yeah when you watch a clip on YouTube you're actually nearer the screen than you've ever been yeah. You're you're in with that person. You feel like you're chatting to a friend, and the psychology behind it is vast. Uh, and I and I've read I've read about thirty books on this because it's it's fascinating. But it's one to one. It's immediate. Yeah. Isn't it? uh, but but you get a, but you get a dialogue out of it as well. And also it's it's psychologically in the phrasing of everything. It's social. It's sharing. It's but you don't have that on TV. You just have a passive experience. And even even. Uh, you know, when that didn't exist, bands went on radios and did interviews or in magazines and would say, oh, we like this band. And, you know, I'd go, oh, I like that band. I've got a connection with them. But that connection is really weak. I have to go to the thing and enjoy their music and build that connection up slowly. Now, people can watch you, you know, vlog about your tour or vlog about, you know, what it's like to do whatever and, and feel like they know you in a way that, uh, because it's because it's customised to you and because it's made by you, they they know that they they feel like they know you even more than if they were reading an edited thing in a magazine. That's why that magazine, um, what the trend I think it was, it was a YouTube magazine that briefly came out, did not do well because everyone was like, "Well, I can just go to their channel and read it. Why do I need to read it in a yeah. magazine?" They should have just called themselves pointless. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that was taken by a TV program. <laughs> I think it was, yeah. But yeah, so um, that's that's the reason why, and also um, uh, people. There's a there's a fundamental uh, it's 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 partly because of social media, but there's a fundamental element of loneliness in the generation that I'm coming out of that uh, we feel like we've been promised more than we I mean I'm talking generally we feel like we've been promised more than we uh, should have been and and it's impossible for us so we can't get on the property ladder no. we, it's very hard to get a job for life it's even more hard to achieve a dream you know like a career as as a performer if you want uh, and all these things are stuff that. Uh, in the media while we were growing up have sort of been promised to us but economically it's changed so as a result we want connection but we also want to be reserved because we don't want to trust anymore you know what it's the punk generation isn't it yeah yeah but it's it's because that's that that, i mean you've just described how i felt when i was in my 20s yeah seeing all these Bands dressed in ridiculous clothes, playing these ridiculous instruments, playing ridiculous songs, and thinking, "What the fuck?" You know. Yeah. And then within a punk started, yeah, seventy five, seventy six, and suddenly it was a whole new world. And then, of course, comedy yeah. went the same way around the same time. So I get it. I would be, I would be like you. I, I, I feel. I mean, look, as I say, I've got three kids. I think, I mean, in a word, I think they're fucked, you know, and I don't know what they can do about it because we seem to have got ourselves in this position where we seem to look after old people now and not care about young people. I mean, it's true, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, my, my nan. It's, it's their comfort, <laughs> you know, but they're fine, yeah. you know. I mean, I'm old enough now to go into the chemist and they don't charge me for a prescription. And I say to them, 
what do you mean don't charge me I want to pay mm. they said no you can't pay why can't I pay it's fucking ridiculous when you know someone like you for instance who've got very little money have to pay it's it's sorry this is completely off the point no, I know no, I, but I, I, I it, it's, it's I, I find it really yeah I'm a socialist I find it really what's the word it's um challenging isn't the word at all depressing. I want to say something about <laughs> swearing it is depressing yeah it's it's not it's actually bang on the point but the thing that annoys me about it is as much as so okay as much as you can look at it and go we're fucked in a lot of ways we're not it's just we technology has evolved quicker than we have so you know the amount of times uh, you know the, these friends of mine so I mean we keep talking about it but if we pick any YouTuber that's doing vaguely well they got up off their ass and went I want to share what I do with the world yeah because you've taken control back you see but you can do that yes you can now and, and the, but the, but the massive difference here is um, the cost of technology is lowered the cost of sharing is lowered the, a distribution model that exists and everyone's got access to it called the internet is there um, if you want, if you want a day job in in an office, there are. I mean, I, I'm not saying everyone can just find one immediately. That's yeah, I know how hard that is, and I have friends who are unemployed who have been unemployed for a long time, and I wouldn't put down their job search at all. However, um, I do believe that that there are uh, options for that if it if it's not going well for you where you're doing it. You could move. You could try and. Uh, you know, like uh, take an unpaid thing temporarily, and I mean, if you're not getting paid anyway, and you have fifty quid in the bank, you could easily go to a company and say, "Look, can I come for two weeks? If you cover my travel, I've got money for sandwiches. Let me do some work." I did that. Um, you know, when I first started out, uh, well, you know, what I did. Go on. The enterprise allowance scheme. Everyone did that. So, no, <laughs> no, genuinely, <laughs> that's what Henry did. That's what Henry did. Uh, I spoke to Earl Oakin about a week ago. He did that. I'd learned to drive, and I and I and I called myself a, a van driver. I can't remember the yeah. name I had, and that's how I was able yeah. to sort of start touring with vans and, and yeah. Everything. But it's but it's uh, that was Thatcher. Yeah, that's the thing. Everyone says the, the bad most stuff, hated but that creature. Was, yeah. We all detested. But she gave us this opportunity. Yeah, and we I think we got we got more money. From the dole or whatever, it, it backed up whatever we earned, mm. and I think you had it for a year. Yeah, and then you had to come off it for a year, and then you, then you that's could, right. That's but that Henry was it. <laughs> that was the last time I signed on, and I've been signed on for about five years at the time. Mm. But the, this is the thing. I mean, I, 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 there, there's a learned helplessness that comes the more you're unemployed. That means that you sort of feel like it's you know not going to happen yeah, for yeah, you yeah, or yeah. whatever. It's and, very depressing. Yeah, and and, uh, and I totally get that. But I, and I had that, you know, when I left uni, I had like two, three months where I wasn't, where I wasn't employed and I didn't, wasn't doing anything. You feel worthless, don't you? Yeah. And, and immediately I remember I got up one morning and I just thought to myself, I'm going to, I'm going to ring every company, like not email them because that wasn't getting me anywhere. I'm going to ring every company and I'm going to say to them, I will come in for free. I just want to get in the door and try stuff. And, and eventually one did. And I, and I got in and then they started paying me a very shit amount of money. Like it was literally covering my travel. Yeah. And, and then I, and then probably I felt guilty. Well, probably, but uh, but I didn't care no, no, because no. you know I was in the door of an industry and I just wanted to do something because I got a degree all of a sudden and nothing. Yeah. And then and then I started doing journalism at the weekend, so it meant I had no social life. But I was working social media Monday to Friday, and I was doing journalism in the in the weekends. And out of nowhere, all of a sudden, I've got enough that you know I'm I'm able to buy a pret sandwich at lunch rather than <laughs> just you know making my yeah, own. Yeah. Um, I didn't because I wanted to keep my money, but I could have done. Um, uh, but but it's the point that, you know, if I if I said to myself I'm fucked and I just accepted that, I wouldn't have booked my own tour. 
I wouldn't I wouldn't be doing fest I'm doing nine festivals this year. I wouldn't be trying to meet people like you to find out how I can improve what I'm doing. And and and, and a large group of people listening to this wouldn't be, you know, on a on an almost daily basis emailing me saying, Thank you for doing this because it's got me up off my arse. It's got me to do something. Well the thing is, look, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but a lot mm. of us start with nothing. Yeah. I started with nothing. Mm. I mean, I, you know, literally, I had to raise a million pounds to do Eddie's tour. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I didn't have, I had a fiver in my bank account. I mean, I had no money whatsoever. So if I can do that mm. and, you know, make, make a success of it, and I'm not saying it's easy. There's a lot of, oh, yeah, but you were lucky enough to you know, run into Eddie, et cetera, et cetera. But that came through a whole history of, of you know, the band playing. and yeah. uh, Edinburgh's, I mean, my first Edinburgh was 81, I think, 82. Yeah. It's a long process until eventually you've been, you know, touring for 25 years. You know people, they'll know you, they trust you. And eventually, you know, something else comes from it. But... Um, I think anybody, well, I know if I'm capable of it, everybody's capable of it. There's no, there's mm. nothing special about me. Mm. The only thing that I've ever said, which has probably helped me, is that I've always been attracted to talent. Mm. I love talent, and I think I'm pretty good at spotting it. Mm. And so whenever I saw somebody that was good or doing something special, I wanted to be part of it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that was the draw. Yeah. Uh, I, it still I, is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and, and that's part of my excitement for this. I make I make friends that I think are better than me in this, and, and that I think will push me, but also make me excited to go to a gig and bump into them. It's like playing for the best football team, isn't it? Yeah. You, you don't want to play for the shittiest one and be the best player. Yeah. You probably be the worst player, but play with yeah. the best. Yeah. That's pretty much how I see myself in my friendship circle. Hello, everyone. Uh, <laughs> but it, but, it, but, it, but it's, it's the thing that um, you, you you can't look at it and go, "All this is against me." And, and not see that as an opportunity. There's a really good book I started reading, I still haven't finished, it's called um, The Obstacle is the Way, and it's uh, by Ryan Holiday, and it's uh, it's all about um, how whatever obstacles come in front of your path, that's actually the route that life's taking you down, and you don't get a choice in it. And it's uh, and it's sort of, the it's, it's a whole Buddhist slash Zen philosophy thing. It's a bit wanky, I'm aware, when I talk about it like this. But it's, uh, it's I'm, I'm more, I'm more I, saying that for people who I did who martial arts for 20 years, I know about Zen. Oh, okay, fine. I'm more saying it for someone <laughs> who's probably listening to this going, he's banging on about Buddhism again. <laughs> but, you know, you, you take an extra, you know, I, 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 I went and bought business cards recently, right, that I've got my Twitter handle and my, and my website on and stuff to give away club nights in case people like me. I, I, I take email address at the end of every gig, and I remember I, I had a full room. I had literally about 80 people in the room two nights ago, and um, one of my friends got put a photo up, and he was like, oh, how have you done that? And I was like, well, last year I came, and I had half rooms, and I took everyone's email addresses, and I emailed them and said, could you tell friends? And a lot of them came because of that, because I said, it's my first night, I'd love to have a good opening night. I then emailed a lot of businesses down here, so I didn't have to come down and fly her, and I said, can you guys come? Because, uh, you, know, you know, I came back last year, and whatever and 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 last year when i came down i went to a load of businesses and took names of people and like i wrote to those people specifically and, and i just put effort in and then and this person like said you're your very own enterprise scheme aren't you yeah, a little bit but i haven't got but we haven't got an enterprise scheme no i know and i think and i think maybe you should go out and bang the drum for it i'm all right i i, <laughs> I well no because i think i think i think it's got to a stage where you have to do everything your own way and so a general scheme that just gives you money is not necessarily going to help the situation i'm not sure i'm not where so are sure. you a, what's your aim where are you going 
with all of this. With this pod? Well, with what you do, with your comedy, with the pod, with... Is, is, is there a great, you know... Do you know Hills Jager asked me that the other day? Well, it's an obvious question, really, isn't it? Because you go around talking to all boring old people like me about what we do. <laughs> you're, you're obviously involved in stand-up comedy. You, you, you want to make it as a stand-up comic. You yeah. said that to me last year. Yeah. Um, and you're doing this and you're getting a, a, a large number of followers, which you will grow. Um, can you make a career out of, out of just doing this or does that lead on to some other form of journalism? Or, or ha, I, I Where are you going, is my question. <laughs> um, when I, I'll tell you what happened. I rang Hills to ask her for a spot at a club because I've never done it. And uh, she, I don't think she'll mind me telling you this. She, she got a little bit snappy at me because she told me that you know you have to enter a competition to get a spot there, and uh, and then asked me about my five year plan, and I said I haven't got one, and uh, she sort of went, oh well, why are you even ringing me? Why if I'm not on your plan, you don't even you know you don't, you know basically got a bit upset. Uh, I said upset. She she gave me a kick up the ass which I needed, and I realised yeah I should probably be doing more. And, and I don't have a direction. You don't necessarily... I mean, look, I've never had a five-year plan or even a one-year plan. You don't necessarily need a five-year plan. But mm. I just wondered, you know, somewhere at the back of your head, you kind of you kind of know where you're aiming. There's, the, yeah. there's some ambition somewhere. Yeah. If, you know, if you can pinpoint it, you can maybe find a path towards it. I, I want to get to a stage where I can tour a new hour every year. And outside of that, I can do 100, 150 club gigs and, and make enough money that... I could live in a nice Well, my place. best advice is that you should go abroad as well. Okay. Because, you know, Estonia, Latvia, former Yugoslavia. Is I mean, it? all these places, fantastic. I, I, fantastic I, venues, Scandinavia, Iceland, Poland. I've got a friend who's uh, from this podcast, in fact, who's in Amsterdam, who messaged me recently asking if I want to come out and do it for two days at his place. Do it. So I might do that. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm more than happy, by the way. Because that will open a lot more doors for you. If anyone's listening to this and you're in another country and you want to book me, I will go. Like, if you, <laughs> it's not a problem. But no, I, I, the only reason I haven't chased it is because I've only just got used to what I, like you said, you think you get used to something and all of a sudden it all changes and you think, mm. you know, you don't know anything. I, I felt like I was only just getting used to what's here. So I didn't want to jump into a new pond, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's just that, you know, I mean, look, it's, I know it's been said before, but look at the Beatles. I mean, they made it in Hamburg before they made it in Liverpool. Mm. Sometimes you have to step out of your comfort zone and kind of rediscover yourself and, and be discovered. There's, um, there's a film called Searching for Sugar Man. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, uh, it's, I a, have. it's a singer who... It's the guy who played... It was a big... Uh, in, in South Africa, yeah. they were huge fans. Where he'd never been. No. Funnily but, enough, I, I, I watched it on the plane to South Africa. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, and yeah. then when I got there, I'd never heard this guy, and I yeah. mentioned it, and everybody went, oh, yeah, yeah. it's huge. Yeah. No, I, uh, all this stuff fascinates me. I've literally just finished writing a book about this, all this subject because the whole, the whole thing fascinates me. But, and and I, I've only just realised how much of everything in my life has sort of correlated. So from getting the job in social media, from pushing myself in that respect and then using all those admin skills in comedy and then using all the networking skills in attempting comedy and then, and then trying to work out how technology works in comedy. And, and, you, and also my day job is very much the same as my night job. If I don't say something funny on Twitter for a brand everyone lets you know you know if you've got 2,000 people following you they'll jump on you if you go on a, a junglers on a Saturday night and say something they don't think is funny they'll fucking shout at you so it, okay. there's not that much different between my day and night job oddly enough no so you do know what you're doing 
Possibly. <laughs> I know. I know where I want to go, and and I'm gonna get there, regardless. You will, man. You will. I, I don't have anything else to do in life, so. No, but you just have to be almost fixated. I've literally just started a video blog called "There Is No Plan B." Because I wanted to commit to myself and be like, you know, I don't have a plan B anymore. All the famous people <laughs> I know have only ever wanted to do what they're doing. Yeah. And, and they've, you know, even, even when people have said that they're rubbish at it or stupid and they kept on doing it, eventually they've achieved because people come around in the end. Do you want to, I wasn't going to ever tell anyone this, but do you want to know a secret that everyone else could know as well? <laughs> Go on. Yesterday I did we all gig. want to know. Yesterday I did a gig, uh, I did my show. And uh, it didn't go as well as the the first night, but uh, the this woman came and uh, and sort of jumped in and, and sort of had a go at me because she she didn't like some of the material. She'd uh, she said to me that I'd I'd said something quite uh, what she said I would have been insulted if I'd said it. Basically, um, it was a comment about how uh, she said something like I I said I didn't like ugly women or something, and I've never said anything like that on stage. And uh, I asked everyone in the audience, "Have you?" But uh, she was there, and she said that. Yeah, you said yeah. This she thing. said that, like in in the, just after the joke. And I did say to everyone, "Has anyone else read that joke like that?" And no one else had. And I said to her, "You know, could you quote me what I said to that?" And afterwards, she came, you know came up to me and she just went, "Can we listen to your recording back for that gig?" Yeah, uh, and I was like not really there's another show about to start and I've got to go and do a spot somewhere else and she was like well that's you know if you if you haven't got time you know you ask for feedback and I was like yeah I didn't ask it during the you know what I mean and, and it was one of those things where I I had to run to another show and on my way there I was thinking to myself I need to just shake this, form, this person off because there's no way I, I first of all I don't know an angle that it would be funny that's and, very funny and second oh except this and and second of all just you can't let someone just one person who's misinterpreted something put you off no I shouldn't worry about it and just write some good material around it that's what I'm trying to do but it's (laughs) it's for the next show now Um, but yeah yeah. well that's Brighton for you welcome (laughs) all the the other people in Brighton have been absolutely lovely genuinely oh well um, right, I'll tell you what I'm going to do because we've, we've sort of got sidetracked a bit but I'm going to I'm okay. going to I'm going to ask you sort of two more general okay. questions and then the fast ones if that's cool because yeah. um, I was going to ask you if you use social media to research where you I do I feel talk. like I, I, I wafted on a bit in the beginning but you'll have to be the judge of that so I, I'll, I'll edit it uh, the, the, the edits are um, a necessary evil but I've got used to really liking them now I don't know why okay. it's kind of an odd thing um I was going to ask if you use social media at all to research where you do tours, because obviously if someone's got a big following, the analytics will tell you where their fans are. No. Nope. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, is there a reason for that? <laughs> um, because comedy is pretty much universal, so therefore they should be able to play anywhere. Um, obviously, if, if you're a comic that emanates um, from the north, say... Manchester, Liverpool, then predominantly you're going to have a a, a, a larger audience there initially. Um, and you may think when you're booking a tour, okay, well, we'll, you know, we'll play a 2,000-seat room rather than a 1,000-seat room or whatever. Um, but no more than that. Okay, fair enough. Um, I won't ask you the follow-up to that because the answer was no to the first bit of it. Um, right, so these are the quick-fire questions I ask everyone. Okay. The quick-fire for me, you take as long as you like to answer them. Um, what is the best book you've ever read on comedy writing, stand-up, or in your case, touring? Not on, I've never read a book on comedy writing. Okay. On touring? Has anybody ever written a book on comedy touring as such? I don't write one. <laughs> I don't write one. 
You know that saying, what goes on tour stays on tour? Um, <laughs> That's, I, I tried to pitch an idea of a podcast. I was doing a load of gigs with people and I tried to pitch an idea of a podcast that we would record the conversations in the car and put them out as unedited podcasts and everyone was like, what stays in the car? The guy doesn't come out of the car. No, the, the, yeah. I mean, after a while, there are just, there are just too many stories, aren't there, really? Um, you can skip the question. It's a, it's not a... I suppose the, 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 the answer to the question is I haven't read the book yet. Okay. It's excited me. Okay. Um, what's the best show you've ever seen? Quick fire, eh? Um, <laughs> how, can I, how can I possibly think of the best show I've ever seen across this many years? Christ. Okay, I'm thinking of um, Eddie Izzard um, live at the Ambassadors when I first saw him perform. And, and, um, and he'd just come out, or he'd just come out in the last few months or whatever. And uh, I just thought, wow, look at this guy. And then listening to him and just thought, nobody else... Nobody else was doing stuff like that. Um, yeah, I thought he was quite amazing. So probably that stays in my mind. What's the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you overcome it? I was touring once with um, an act called The Right Size and we were in touring every town and city in Belgium and Holland. And there was the name of a venue on the tour book and it was at least a five-hour drive from where we were. So we all got up early and we drove through the wind and the rain all the way to this place. And when we got there, we couldn't find the venue. So we went to a post office and we showed her the name of the town and the name of the venue. And then she looked at us and she said, I'm sorry, but there's two cities with this name. And the one that we should have been in was half an hour from where we'd just been. Wow. So we had to drive all the way back. I was going to ask how you overcame it, but I assume... The, the walk of the drive of shame I was driving oh right I was driving they were navigating um, but yeah we, we we made the gig by uh, know, 10 minutes or whatever we had to set up but yeah that was um, that was a day it, it, some things just stay in your memory but yeah. there's many shaming moments I'm not prepared to tell you Fair not on the internet tell you some of them no What's the most interesting thing you do that nobody ever gets to see I think it's discovering acts just just the sheer joy of, of seeing something which fills you with delight and 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 you and you reaffirm why you're in this business um who do you think is the most underrated person in the industry it can be a performer or an industry mm. person yeah. gosh that's a real tough question it's my favorite one to ask because i'm i'm from this side and so i would say the most underrated people are the people who put so much care and effort into actually producing a tour booking the tour making sure it's the right venue getting the best deal that they can get and making sure an audience arrives there and once the act arrives on the stage everything is sorted there's nothing they have to worry about i think that person for me is probably the star of it outside of the act uh, and you don't want to name anyone specific or or my staff okay fair enough um i hope they listen to this oh well, i hope they just skip to that bit and go like that what do you think is the biggest problem in the comedy industry and how would you go about solving it the biggest problem in the comedy industry i think is harking back to the other question about overexposure on tv um i think that it's created a sort of couch potato audience and um look you know i work in the live i just want people to go and see live there's been a lot of uh, local clubs closed down in the last year or two there's a lot of small theatres that have closed down and um, we need to somehow get people off their arses and, and back out there seeing and I think the only way they're going to do that is is if we have less comedy on TV 
generally. What's the best bit of advice you've ever been given? The best bit of advice I've ever been been given that from my first profit by your office, and I did just that. Who gave you that? A man called the wonderful, lovely Andre Pazinski. And uh, if you could go back to your 20-year-old self and give yourself one bit of advice, what would you say? <laughs> get that fucking address right. <laughs> I just realised how how little I knew at, at twenty. Oh, so many things. I mean, there's so many things. What would I say? The one bit of advice I'd say to myself. Okay, the one bit of advice I'd say to myself at twenty is, "Don't worry, it'll be fine." Yeah, I can, that's that's something I wish I told myself way before I was twenty. But yeah, <laughs> um, have you got any last nuggets of advice you'd like to give to a couple of thousand comedians? I think that the best advice I can give is that you should believe in yourself totally. Um, listen to your friends, maybe not all of them. Talk to industry people and, and, and speak to those who you know will be honest. It's easy to give people bullshit and it's sometimes hard to take the truth. But within that, there should be positive criticism. You can extract the negative if you so choose, but there'll be positive criticism in there as well. And... Um, and really, really, really give 100% to every performance you do, you do and enjoy your audience. Even if they don't get you or particularly like you, enjoy them. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was Mick Perrin. I, I really enjoyed chatting to him. He sort of called me out a bit near the end, as you would have heard. And I quite like it when the guest does that. I quite like it when they're sort of engaged in the dialogue and sort of curious as to why I'm even doing this. Because... My original reason for doing this has sort of gone out the window and I've carried on doing it because I genuinely enjoy it and I genuinely actually sort of... (laughs) That makes it sound like I wasn't enjoying it in the first place. I genuinely enjoy it and I genuinely enjoy meeting people in the industry who have done this for so long because I would like to think in 20 years I'll still be in the industry doing stuff. So, yeah, it's just quite nice to hear their stories and where they've come from and what they do and how they make a living. So I'm enjoying it. If you like this episode, uh, please check out the live podcast, which is episode 32, which we did at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival last year. That's got McPerrin in, as well as uh, PRs and touring agents. And basically, if you're enjoying and looking into going on a tour, that should be something you should check out. I've also got a podcast episode with Sam Brady, which is episode 51, which is a few pods ago, where he organised his own tour. And that's worth listening to as well. If you're enjoying the show and getting any value out of it, uh, as I said, please join the Facebook group. Uh, it means you can discover guests with a bit announced. And also, if you would like to support the podcast and keep it going, please do think about leaving me a one-off donation via PayPal on my website or a per-pod donation on Patreon. Uh, you can do it from as little as $1, which is 80p an episode. That would really help out. It really does make a massive difference, and it really helps me get a budget for the show and keep it going and all the things I keep banging on about, but genuinely, it would just be great if I could get up to X amount of patrons and X amount of budget, which means that this might even break even one day. So if you would like to support this project and you get any value out of it at all and you can help out, don't do it if you can't. Like, I, a lot of podcast people say, oh, please donate and never actually point out that you, you don't have to donate if you can't. And if you can't donate, I'd rather you didn't because I really don't want anyone else going into debt for this project than me. But if you can afford it, and you can just bung me a quid or something, please do. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for joining the Facebook group. Thank you very much for sharing the podcast if you do that. And thank you very much for donating. I will see you in about 10 days' time. Bye. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365 day returns.